On this episode of the Share the Knowledge Podcast for DJs, we talk about is there such a thing as too much scratching? What are some good ways to read the crowd? And what equipment do I use when I record mixtapes? Now, I have the answers to that and a lot more, so let's get started right now. For the last 26 years, I've been rocking stages, playing in clubs, and having a lot of fun as a DJ and turntablist. And in that time, I've seen and learned a lot. Now it's time for me to share that knowledge by answering the questions that can help you to become a better DJ. I'm DJ TLF, and this is the Share the Knowledge Podcast for DJs. One, two, one, two, what's going on? Welcome back to the Share the Knowledge Podcast for DJs. I'm your host, DJ TLM, and this is episode seven. This is my Q&A show where I try to answer as many DJ-related questions as possible to the best of my ability. Now, I have over 25 years of DJ experience, and I've been a tour DJ for over 20 years. I've been producing for quite some years as well. I've organized events. I've done a lot of things within the hip-hop music industry. So I know some things, and there's plenty of things that I don't know, and I'm learning on a daily basis. I'm also kind of a tech nerd, especially when it comes to DJ-related tech. So I love to try out new stuff. I like to review stuff. I do that on my YouTube channel called DJ TLM TV. So if you're new to the podcast and you haven't checked out my other platforms, Make sure you check out DJ TLM TV on YouTube, and you can follow me everywhere. The handle is DJ TLM on all social media. Oh yeah, before I forget to mention, I restarted, relaunched my newsletter, and I actually sent out the first one today. So if you're not subscribed to the newsletter, you can do that by going to my website, djtlm.com, and subscribing right there. Now, I started my newsletter uh, I'm almost ashamed to say, but at the end of 2015, I sent one newsletter and that was it. Yeah, I thought it would be a good idea, but I didn't really have it planned out. And the way I went about it is I made it way too difficult, way too much work to make it happen. And it just didn't happen again. So yes, it's almost four years, like three and a half years ago. So I'm just going to disregard that and start from today. I sent it out today. And the newsletter is gonna be a weekly newsletter, and that's gonna just highlight everything that I did in the week before from all platforms. So if you're only following me on YouTube, you might be missing out on something that I post on Instagram that could have been interesting, like a short performance clip, or the podcast that I drop on Anchor, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, you name it. I have people that follow me on one platform and miss out on the other content. So the weekly newsletter is gonna give you a nice overview of everything I did on all platforms. Now, I'm not talking about every Instagram post, only if it's something interesting. It's gonna be mostly about the YouTube videos, the podcasts, and uh, if I release new beats on Spotify or SoundCloud, that's gonna be on there as well. So just to keep you up to date in case you miss out, because YouTube, even if you're subscribed and even if you have the notifications activated, it doesn't always work. We've seen that happen. So that newsletter is gonna be your sure shot to make sure that you get everything every week, including sometimes maybe special giveaways or other things like that. I'm gonna be dropping those to the newsletter first and maybe later on on platforms as well. So you're gonna have the first, uh, you're gonna be front row for things like that as well. So check out the website for the DJ TLM newsletter. All right, so the first question is, I've been DJing for years and was wondering what advice you have for your timing video. Meaning like, what happens if you lose count? 
Do you just wait for the one after the phrase you lost count in and start over? I think that's a great question. Well, look, I like to talk about kind of music. I like to talk about how it is one of the fundamentals and actually in my mix tutorial series on YouTube, that is part one in the playlist. Before the actual introduction, I want people to start with the counting music video. You need to understand about beats, bars, and phrases, and you need to practice counting music. So at first, that is gonna be one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. That's gonna get you started. Mind you, I'm talking about music with that 4-4 time signature. If you have no understanding of what I'm saying, uh, you need to check that video. But most of the music we play has the same time signature, and in that time signature, you have four beats for every bar. All right, so we start with counting the beats, then you start counting bars, then you start learning about phrases, the structure of songs, and all of this is necessary for you to create a sense of timing for your transitions. But I understand that sometimes if you're not trained enough yet, you might lose the count. This could happen, and it is actually a sign of not being skilled enough at counting yet. So, yes, it is possible to, if you lose the count in the phrase, to just wait and see if you can find that one again. If you have enough time in the track, you could do that. I remember when I started out first playing uh, at parties, house parties, we would bring our equipment and I would DJ, I would get nervous and sometimes I would basically either lose count or I couldn't match the beats fast enough. Uh, the next verse would start, I would have to wait and hopefully I would get it. And I admit there's been a couple of times and you might've been there as well that I was almost at the end of the song and I did not have my beats matched yet, and then you hear that dreaded fade out when the song ends and you're not ready. Ah, I hated that, everyone looks at you. It's part of the game though, you learn from it. But at a certain point, you should be able to just find the count and keep the count without even counting. So yes, the answer is if you lose count, you need to just listen to the track again Find that count again, see if you can recognize where a new pattern begins, where a new phrase begins, and take it from there. Now, if you know the songs, it should also help out a lot. So if you're listening to the song and you forgot the count, but you know the song, you should be also able to tell when the next chorus is coming in. That is why it's also so important to know your music. Now, in my case, I'm talking about choruses. I play a lot of hip hop and R&B. You're dealing with choruses, verses, choruses, and of course, maybe an intro and an outro. If you're playing other types of music, you might be more into having like intros, breakdowns, drops, you name it, the buildup. All of those things are recognizable. So anytime you hear that new switch, you also know that you can start your count there again. But it all starts with actually really mastering how to count music because once you master it, you're not even counting anymore. Your whole system can just tell. I don't count. I haven't counted in years. Now, let me correct myself. I haven't counted for years when I'm doing transitions, but if I have new music and there's a new track that has a start that is a little bit different than the normal, so it doesn't start on the one, but it has like a really unorthodox drum roll type of start. Then I'll have to take a couple of listens, count while I play it to find out how it exactly comes in. 
once I know, I know, and then that's done. But when it comes to transitions, I haven't counted music in years. So keep on practicing and you should be able to get there as well. And then we're not even talking about losing count anymore. Now the next question actually falls right into place with the last one. And the question is, how do you drop a track without mixing? Well, once again, here we are. If you know how to count music, and if you know your music, you know when a certain phrase of the song ends. So let's say in this case, you know when the chorus of song one will end. So you have song two ready on the one, and you wait for that chorus to end. And when the new phrase is about to come in, so the new one after the hook comes in, that's where the new track comes in. I do a lot of my mixes that way, so I'm basically not even mixing, I'm dropping. During the warm-up, I do a lot of mixing, but during the hype part, I mix some tracks, but a lot of times I will just throw it in, drop it on the one. So you're counting, and once you get to that last count, so that last one, two, three, four, one, that's where the new one comes in. That way, you're still doing the same timing, if it is in the same tempo or about the same tempo, people can just continue in that same flow. Now keep in mind, if you're playing a track that is in a totally different tempo than the last one, you can still drop it on the one, but in that case, I would not let the other track play until the last count. What I mean by that is, if you have one track that's playing at, let's say 95 BPM, that track is playing. If you let that play until that last one, two, three, four, and on the one, you drop a track that's 120 BPM, that's gonna shock the crowd like crazy. So if it's a familiar song, like I said, during the hype, I might drop on the one a lot. If it's a familiar song, I know people are gonna be singing that hook. I might even have a microphone ready to sing along as well. I'll take out the track for the last couple of counts. Let them sing the last one or two lines of the song without a beat there. That way, the impact of the new track is gonna be totally different. And especially if it's also a well-known track, they're not even thinking about the tempo anymore. They just sang along to a line, and then a new banger comes in. And even though it's a different tempo, it should still work. Like normally that works for me, but don't let it play right until the end and drop it because then 95 to 120 is gonna sound crazy. But again, it's all about knowing your music, knowing how to count music, making that a natural feeling, and then dropping it on the one without mixing becomes very easy. And I actually have a video about this and I think the video was called mixing versus dropping it on the one. You have to check my channel. If you go to my YouTube channel, go to the search box and you type in dropping it on the one or drop on the one, you should probably find it that way. And I actually show you an example where I'm mixing and where I'm dropping it on the one without mixing. So in last week's episode, I talked about not taking shortcuts because someone asked me a question if I had tips how to speed up the learning curve. And this week I have a question that kind of boils down to the same thing, but there's a longer story attached. So let me just start with that story. I'm 24, I started DJing when I was 19, but my whole equipment was stolen and the problem was I loaned the money for it so I couldn't afford a new one, so I had to quit before I even started. For years I was planning to start over, but money was a big problem in college also. So for five years I did nothing, I lost five years. 
And now my thinking is that even if I start now, I could never be as good as I would be if I would have started at 19, because five years is a lot of time. And also every DJ and producer says that you always learn and that it takes a lifetime of learning. So my logic is that I will always be five years behind. Like when I'm 26, 27, I will never be as good as I would be if I started at 19 because of the five-year backlog. And even when I'm 30, I will never be as good if I would have started at 19. So what do I do? Is there any way to compensate lost time? Any tips for faster DJ and production learning? I really had the passion, but when I think I lost five years, I just lose desire only because I think I will never be as good and I will never have the skill that I would have had if I started at 19. All right, uh, I think it even continues with more of the same, but um, the message is pretty clear. So let's just start right here. You shouldn't be living with regret. That's a terrible thing to do, and especially because it is something that happened and it was out of your control. So stop thinking about what if I started at 19 that's not the case. You're starting at 24. So let that go. Stop thinking about that. And you, let's be honest. If you're going to use that as the mindset, then I could always say, what about DJs who started at 13? Does it mean that they're all better than you because they started earlier? They have more of a head start? Now, the answer is no, not really. And the answer, and hopefully this will make you feel better, is also that there's plenty of people who start later than 24, in their 30s, in their 40s. Look, here's the thing. I understand the you're always learning concept. And it's true. I'm still learning every day. But a lot of the things I'm learning now, I couldn't have learned five years ago because five years ago, those things weren't around. Other things are learned through experience, but then again, I know DJs that have been DJing as long as I have, but we both have a different level of experience. We've both been through different things. I started at the same time as certain DJs, and in that time, all they've done is play at local bars and clubs. That was their thing, perfectly fine. In that same time, I played at local bars and clubs. I played at venues throughout the country, festivals, small and very large. I've toured all across the country and other countries in Europe and abroad, uh, like overseas. And I've done 3,500 live shows besides my DJ career. And I've organized my own events, like I said in the intro. So my experience is not the same as another DJ who started at the same time I did, like 26 years ago. It all depends. So how long ago you started, that's only part of the equation. I shouldn't worry about that. Now, here's the thing. There's not really a thing you can do to now win back those five years, but that should not be your goal at all. You can learn now. If you start now, just start learning now. And 24 is still very young. But again, let me just add, you could start at 30, 40, or 50 as well. The only thing is, once you get older, the nightlife might not be as appealing anymore compared to when you're 24. But don't let it bother you, and don't think about time that you lost and try to win that time back. Just focus on the now, and keep in mind that now there's access to a lot more educational material than you would have had five years ago. 
tips and tricks videos, tutorials, and I'm not even talking about just my own stuff on YouTube, but there's plenty of other videos out there. The amount of DJ courses that are available nowadays, uh, you can get lessons online, you name it. So a lot of stuff people can do now wasn't even possible five years ago, 10 years ago. So just go for it. If you have the feeling that this is what you want to do, just go ahead and do it and enjoy it. And don't let the negative thoughts of something that happened that you can't change anymore, it already happened, affect you. Just enjoy the moment and live in the now. Learn all you can, and yes, you will continue to learn over time, but what people mean when they say learning over time and you keep on learning, a lot of that doesn't really have to do with the fundamentals. The fundamentals are the same, so you start there, you learn the fundamentals of DJing, you learn the fundamentals of producing, of making music, and take it from there. But the experience that you will gain on top of that, that's gonna be different for everyone. For some people, it's not gonna go beyond the bedroom, for some people, it's just gonna be the local youth center, and for others, it's gonna be touring the world. The experience for everyone is different, but even that, nowadays, you can learn from other people's experience as well through podcasts, interviews, you name it. Don't sweat it. Get started, get into it, and don't look for shortcuts. Start with those fundamentals and take it from there. That's all I can add to it. Uh, have fun doing it, man. That's what it's all about. All right, so I like this question. This is another question from the Instagram topic, and the question is, is there such a thing as too much scratching? Now, I gave the short answer there, and the answer was yes, there is such a thing as too much scratching, uh, but let's just get into that a little bit. First of all, I assume that we're talking about a DJ who plays uh, for people to entertain those people, playing in a club, letting people dance, you name it. In that case, there is definitely such a thing as too much scratching. And I've seen this happen plenty of times. Now, I started playing for people. I also got really interested in turntablism, got into that, got into battles, met a lot of DJs from the battle scene here in the Netherlands. And at a certain point, I was already playing in club, but at a certain point, some of those DJs also started to take on club gigs. And with some of those DJs, you could tell that they were still so used to their battle days that they were cutting it up in between every song and adding even more turntablism, like backspinning every song they throw in, but doing a lot of scratching, but to a point that it turns into a performance when they're supposed to be uh, entertaining the people by letting tracks play. And what would happen is people would stop dancing and start looking. Now that's a cool thing if it's a showcase, if it's a club night and people are dancing and they're interrupted because they have to look, that's cool if you do it once, but if it happens two, three, four times, they're not standing still because they're watching anymore. They're standing still because they're waiting for that annoying DJ to stop scratching. I always credit myself for finding a nice balance and using turntablism in my club sets, but in a subtle way, I still got to have my fun, but it's in a way that people still have uh, a good time and it's not like bothering them. It should add something, a little extra flavor, but not overtake the entire set. So yes, you should definitely watch it if you're playing like that in front of people. Now, if you're known as a scratch DJ and you're being sold, you're being put on the bill as the DJ who's gonna do, let's say, a Red Bull 3 style showcase or something like that. Now, that might include a lot of scratching in there, but even with the Red Bull 3 style sets, they're still made to have people dance. 
But if it's like marketed as a turntablism showcase, you can scratch for 5, 10, 15 minutes. People probably came to see that. That's a different story. Uh, now, if you're just a scratch DJ, I don't know. There's probably not such a thing as too much scratching. And I know some people who like to scratch all day and night. Uh, but that's mostly in the confinement of their own little studio or house. And when it's that time, you can do whatever you want to do. But in a club, take it easy. So when it comes to my style of DJing, freestyle DJing, there's one very important element to make that work, and that is reading the crowd. Now, I have a question about that, and the question is, what are some good ways to read the crowd? I don't know. I can't really say that I can name different ways to read the crowd. I basically use my senses and do two things. I use my eyes and I use my ears. That's it. You're reading the crowd, and what that means is you're looking at their reaction to what you play. So let me just explain. I play freestyle. If you don't know what that means, that means that I do not play with prepared sets. So, of course, I know what type of music I brought on the laptop or on my flash drive, so I know what I have, but I don't know exactly what I'll play and when I'll play it. Now, if I'm booked to do a certain type of event, of course, that will narrow it down. So if I'm playing a 90s hip-hop R&B party, I already know I'm in those 90s hip-hop and R&B folders, so that's pretty specific. And I already know that the crowd coming in is gonna like that style of music. That makes it a lot easier. I don't have to do the same amount of reading the crowd as I would if I'm playing like an open format party where anything's possible and you're not really sure what type of crowd is attending. So taking it back to that first example, it's a 90s hip hop R&B party. If I'm playing the warm up, I don't really have to read the crowd. I know the type of songs I'm gonna play. It's gonna be 90s hip hop R&B with a nice smooth vibe, not too much energy because this is the warm up. There's not gonna be a full dance floor yet because people are still coming in. I'm just gonna set the tone, set the mood, and play some nice tracks that'll fit for that part of the evening. Now, as time goes on, I'm gonna start to add a little bit more energy. Even in that phase, I don't really have to do a lot of reading, but at that point, my goal is gonna be to move people more towards the dance floor. So the only thing I'm doing then is, I'm selecting a couple of tracks, and those tracks have one goal, they're supposed to get people on that dance floor. If I play one or two and they're not moving yet, I might just uh, adjust the strategy and look for something maybe a little more hype, or I just think of something else to do, some other track to play. But that's the only reading I have to do. Are they going towards that dance floor? Is the dance floor filling up? If the answer is yes, I'm doing my job. If the answer is no, I have to just uh, come up with a different plan, look for some different tracks. Now, during the high part of the evening, I don't really have to look. I will look, but you're also using your ears a lot because you're throwing in the bangers, and most likely, if you're hitting them with the right bangers, you're gonna get the nice ooh-ah reaction from the crowd that are singing along to the hooks. Now, if you hear them singing along to a couple of hooks, you know I got you. They're in, they're having a good time, I know what type of tracks to play. Now, if I'm playing at like an open format type of event, there's all sorts of music being played, I'm gonna have to pay more attention and really take a close look to see what type of people I have. So I'm gonna try a lot of different genres, and while I'm playing, if I'm playing, let's say I'll play a couple of dancehall tracks, 
it's going to be very easy to see if there's a reaction because if they like dancehall, you're going to hear a reaction and you're going to see a different type of dancing going on. So I can tell if they like it or not. Sometimes you do it and you see no one moving. You're like, okay, this is not the crowd for that. And I might try something totally different. But I'll try a couple of styles and I'll read that crowd. I'll watch to see how they're moving, if they're moving. And after that, maybe also, of course, use my ears, but mostly just looking at their reaction. That's what reading the crowd means. You're reading their reaction. So that's what I do. I don't have different ways beyond that. Looking, listening. Now, I am interested, if you're watching the video, and if you have different ways to do it, let me know in the comment section. So we have a question about equipment, and the question is, what equipment do you use when doing mixtapes? Now, if we're talking about what equipment I use to play the tracks, that's gonna be different. I've recorded mixtapes with uh, all sorts of equipment, with turntables, with NS7 controllers, with CDJs, so I've done different stuff. I've used other controllers as well, mostly turntables though, and especially turntables with DVS in the later years. But my first mixtape series, my first 10, and even some other projects, that was all just turntables, real vinyl. Uh, and my first couple of mixtapes, we're talking about using turntables, vinyl, and recording it on a cassette deck. So my first series of 10 mixtapes over the first couple of years, all cassette. And the first five, I think, or six were with still the master being a cassette, and I would duplicate those. After that, I got myself a nice MD recorder, a mini disc recorder, that will be my master, and then I would still dub the cassette because that's what people were still buying. Now, after that, it became digital, so when it comes to recording mixtapes in the digital era, uh, I've done different things. Either I would have my DJ set, and I would connect the output of my mixer to an audio interface that was connected to my computer, and then I would record with some type of recording software. A lot of times I would use Cubase, and that was my preferred DAW at the time. Used that for recording. I've also done mixtapes where I recorded in Audition, and I've even used Audacity. So there's all sorts of, well, recording software, production software that has recording capabilities. So take a DJ set, and then have your output go into your computer through an audio interface. Now, an easier way to do it, and that's what I do nowadays a lot as well, if I'm recording a one-take mix, so basically a quote-unquote live mix, I'll record within the DJ software. So if I'm using Serato, I can record in Serato, I can do the same in Tractor, Rekordbox, you name it. So recording it inside the software while you're playing. But if I'm recording a mixtape and I wanna do like a track-by-track -track recording, I'll use some recording software on a computer to record what I'm doing with the physical set. Last way, I've also recorded mixes. Again, live mixes is just a take uh, audio recorder that I have connected to the DJ set at the venue and then just record it. So my Zoom H5 has the option to record Wave 24-bit, so you get nice quality. I'll take the recording output on one of those DJM 900s and just record the audio like that. That is a way, and another way, and I've done that basically only once yet, at home, and that is to reuse the, what's it called again? Pioneer's Rec app. I have a review, you can check that out on the channel as well. Uh, the Rec app allows you to record digitally from a couple of Pioneer mixes, including the 900 Nexus 2. You just take a USB cable, plug it in the top, 
connect it to your iPhone, and then it'll give you a nice digital recording. And there's a couple of advantages to that, so check out that review for all of that. But you have a lot of different options, and when it comes to my personal use, I've used basically all of them. So I guess it all depends on your situation. Are you recording at home in a studio? Are you using DJ software? If you're not using DJ software, you're gonna need another computer to record on. Or if you're recording a one take mix, you could also use an audio recorder, uh, whatever works. And the same thing applies to me, whatever works. If I'm recording here, I don't have a second computer to record. So we'll have to record within the DJ software to make that work. If I want to do a one track recording uh, mix session, so I want to record track by track, I have to bring in a second computer to do that. So it all depends on the situation and how much uh, you have available to you. So I did receive a question about tone arms, and the question is, now that I got my replacement RP8000, can you talk about proper tone arm setting and height on turntables? I would like to hear from you about it. Here's my thing. Now, if you're listening to the podcast, uh, it's going to be really hard to show you, but my honest answer is, when it comes to proper turntable treatment, handling, setting, I was never really into it. Sounds crazy, but when I started with turntables and I got into turntablism, I only had one goal. I wanted to make sure my needle didn't skip. And basically what I would do is I would have my weight as heavy as I could set it so that the needle would be pressed on the vinyl as hard as possible. So I would have that all the way screwed towards uh, um, the middle not have the weight all the way out to the end because then it's going to make your needle, your cartridge lighter and have less pressure on that turn uh, vinyl. So set it to the heaviest so it would have the most uh, pressure on that vinyl. Uh, when it comes to height, I think I always put it quite high, but it depended. Different turntables reacted differently and every time I came to a club, it all depended on how that turntable was. Some were treated like awful, some were just um, some, some were just all messed up because DJs back in the days used to mess around with the turntable. So if you had like a resident DJ, sometimes they would open them things up and change stuff. And you could tell, like you would have two turntables and you have them both playing at plus two, but they weren't playing at the same speed because DJs were messing around with the turntable. So I would just try stuff, put the, 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 the height of the entire tone harm a little bit high, weight as heavy as it could be. And then at certain points I used needles and I found that the heaviest didn't work anymore and I actually had to put it a little bit lighter. So it depends on the needles as well because my M447s reacted differently than some of the Artifon needles. And definitely when I was using my Staten 500s, I would have to have it at the heaviest, put a coin on top of the, the head shell as well, do all sorts of things. Then you have that little anti-skating wheel on there as well. I never, never had a correct setting for that. I tried a couple of different things, and especially at a certain point, I didn't even really move that one, unless I had some real trouble, and the turntable just, the, the needle kept on skipping, then I would try stuff. But sometimes I would come into a club, I would check my needles, I would put the needles on the tone arms, and um, start playing. And if I found that I had an issue, then I would start to adjust stuff. So. 
I'm a horrible person to ask. And I know there's DJs out there who are very specific and they'll bring their little app on their phone even nowadays to check to see if the rotation is correct and they have the perfect height for the turntable, uh, for the tone arm, for their needle and their vinyl, you name it. I'm not that guy. That's a crazy thing. I'm definitely into tech and I like to explore but I'm never one to read manuals, especially back in the days. Sometimes I do now because things got more complicated. I just went on and experimented. And if something worked, it worked and I used it that way. So I don't have a better answer than that, I'm sorry. All right, I wanna answer this question right here because this is a question I see a lot in different shapes, forms, and sizes, but it all comes down to the same thing. So the question right here is, uh, what's a good track to practice beat juggling on a controller? Now the reason I say there's all sorts of questions like this is a question that I would consider similar is when people ask me what's a good sound to practice scratching or what's a good song to practice mixing. The answer is a lot. Now I'm not gonna say every song is as great to practice mixing or every beat is as great to practice beat uh, uh, juggling or every sound is as good to use for scratching. But the answer is there's so much you can use. Now in certain cases with scratching, you could scratch with every sound, but not everything is gonna sound as good. And if you wanna practice certain techniques, like the transform scratch, you cannot use like a very short sound for that or a kick drum. A kick drum is not gonna work for the transform scratch, not that well. You wanna have preferably a longer sound that you can really chop up into a lot of pieces. Now, if you're practicing the baby scratch, you could have a kick drum to practice that. Is it gonna sound as good if you're doing a scratch performance? No, then you want a different sound, but hopefully you catch my drift. Same thing with practicing mixing. You can mix with any music. If you wanna start easy, you might wanna start with some house music with some four to the floor drum beats because that is easier than using, for instance, hip hop, where the drum patterns are different, but you have a lot of options, a lot of choice. Don't start with live music like old soul funk, that's gonna be harder. So if you wanna start simple, take something else. If you wanna make it harder, use live music. I've talked about that in plenty of videos as well. But in this case, if we're talking about beat juggling, there's a lot you can use, but I think the best thing to start with is to try and find something that is a little bit clean. Uh, what I mean by that is start with something that has a nice drum pattern in there, but not too many sounds. Now it doesn't really matter, you could use something with a lot of sounds, but if you're practicing right now, you wanna keep it simple. Uh, if you have too many sounds in there, it might get a little bit confusing. If you only have a nice clean drum pattern, like just the kick and the snare, that's easier to focus on. But it doesn't matter if you're using turntables or a controller, um, what type of beat would be good to use. Uh, I have a couple of beats on my SoundCloud that aren't too fast, so the tempo's pretty okay, and that basically have just drums in there. So that's a good place to start, in my opinion. Now, some DJs might approach this totally different, and I'm not really up to speed with all DJs and turntablists practice regimen, but for me, if I'm practicing beat juggling, basic techniques, just some drums, now, once you get a little bit more advanced, you wanna have something extra in there, like a melody or at least some sounds, because then you're gonna use those sounds to manipulate and uh, really transform it into a different melody, you name it. 
You can use a lot of things. I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble just to think of like an example track, but that's my whole point. It doesn't really matter. If I want to start practicing beat juggling right now, just some basics with a kick and a snare, I'll just open up the folder with instrumentals and I'll find some kicks and drums on plenty tracks that I can use. So don't focus too much on, on that. Just find a nice track with just a nice clean beat to start with. So that's where I'm going to end episode 7 of the Shared Knowledge Podcast for DJs in 2019. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I hope my answers were able to at least get you started, help you on your way, or give you the information that you needed. Now, if you want to ask me questions, I'm on social everywhere. The handle is DJTLM. Check out my YouTube channel, DJTLM TV, and you can also reach me by email, sharetheknowledge at DJTLM.com. Make sure you subscribe to the newsletter by going to my website, DJTLM.com, to get that weekly fresh update with everything I've done in the last week. And that's basically it. I'll be back next Monday with a new episode. Until then, have a lot of fun and practice, practice, practice.